Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, this is a continuation of our episode on the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Just like part one, this episode, part two, is also sponsored by Focus Features. There is a new movie that is out called Darkest Hour, which features a very critical point in World War II as seen through the lens of watching Winston Churchill deal with all of that and the pressures and really what he had to go through. Gary Oldman stars in it. He has gotten uh, lauded for his amazing performance. It looks absolutely beautiful. I really think if you're into our show, you might enjoy it. It's not a Winston Churchill biopic. It is literally just about how he dealt with the pressures of suddenly having to confront war as a new prime minister. But hey, if you have not listened to part one of this two-parter, you're probably going to be a little bit lost if you just jump in right here. So go back and listen to that first one. And as a quick recap for those of you who did listen to part one, we are, we covered in that one the founding of the Special Operations Executive, which is nicknamed the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, and we discussed two of its missions. And today, we are going to delve into the stories of two other missions and then talk about what became of this super-secret war effort after World War II ended. So not long after Operation Anthropoid, which was something we talked about last episode, plans were underway to try to disable Rommel's forces in North Africa. So cutting the supply lines to the Nazi forces in Africa was the most efficient way to impact them. And it wasn't long before the Gorgopodmos Railway Viaduct, which was located in central Greece, was identified as a crucial point on the route that connected Athens with the port city of Thessaloniki. Two other bridges had also been considered for destruction in all of this. The plan was for a 12-man SOE team, which was made up of British, New Zealander, and Greek operators, there was actually only one Greek operator, to parachute in, make contact with the Greek resistance movement that was already in Greece, sabotage the bridge, and then evacuate. The 12 men were parted out into three groups each with its own leader, interpreter, combat engineer, and radio operator. They had a bit of a false start on the initial drop attempt, which was on the night of September 28th into the 29th, 1942. There were supposed to be signal fires to guide them, but no fires had been lit, and the three aircraft, each of them carrying a team, all returned to Cairo with the crews still on board. The drop was rescheduled for the next night, and this time it was a success, although the third group never saw their signal fire and ended up jumping close to an area that was occupied by Italian troops. Yeah, after the first night, they were like, okay, even without the fires, we're just going to aim for where we think it is, and we're going anyway. So even though they didn't have the fire, they were like, well, let's drop. Uh, And it was only after the SOE's men were on the ground in Greece that the Gorgopotamus viaduct was selected as the best possible target. It had fewer Italian troops guarding it and better cover surrounding it than the other two bridges that had been looked at. And the sabotage of the bridge was finally scheduled almost two months after the drop into Greece on November 25th. The combined forces were separated into groups with specific tasks. The railway and telephone lines had to be cut and each end of the bridge had to be covered A hundred men from the Greek guerrilla forces were ready to neutralize the Axis forces that were stationed at either end of the bridge. And then the demolitions teams had to travel into the gorge with mules to attach the explosives to the bridge's girders underneath. After the team split up, it initially seemed as though something was wrong. 
The expected gunfire that should have started at either end of the bridge didn't begin on schedule, but it did finally start at each end after a short delay. But things went very differently on the two ends. The south end of the viaduct was quickly won by the guerrillas, and the Italian soldiers that were stationed there ran for their lives. But the Italian garrison on the north end was not so easily dispatched. Uh, and after more than an hour of gunfire, the mission commander, Colonel Eddie Myers of the Royal Engineers, was given word that the Italians actually had the upper hand, even though this had been a sneak attack. Myers wisely had kept a small fighting force in reserve, and he sent those men to reinforce the guerrillas. And after a short but intense second wave of gunfire, the north end of the bridge was taken by the SOE forces. It was only after the garrisons on either end of the bridge had been dealt with the explosives team could move into position without any worry that they'd be fired upon. They placed their explosives, struck the fuse caps, lit them, and then ran to get to safety. The blast was intense and it destroyed the viaduct. And then a second round of charges was set to just really destroy it beyond all possible recovery. There were injuries to some of the attacking forces from the shrapnel, but no one was killed. And once again, unfortunately, the Germans retaliated against the locals. Sixteen villagers were taken into custody, and they were brought to the ruins of this bridge and shot. After the mission, plans changed for Colonel Myers and his team. Instead of being evacuated, they were tasked with staying in Greece and organizing the guerrilla forces into a unified army. This was no small feat. There was a lot of infighting and rivalry among the various Greek resistance groups. But Myers was able to bring a 5,000-man army together, and that army continued to perform acts of sabotage all around Greece. The last SOE operation that we're going to cover in this episode is credited with putting a stop to the Nazi development of an atomic bomb. Germany had occupied Norway in 1940 and had captured the Norsk Hydro Heavy Water Factory called Vimork, just outside Rukan in Norway. And the location of this plant was, and continues to be, roughly 100 miles to the west of Oslo. The Nazis had ordered an increase in the production of deuterium oxide, which is more commonly known as heavy water, which was an indicator that they were working on an atomic bomb. The Germans had actually had an atomic bomb and nuclear research program since 1939. Physicist Kurt Diebner led the project called Uranium Club, and it included Werner Heisenberg among its scientists. The Nazis had made that increase request almost immediately after taking the plant. And the Allies at that point had no idea how far along a Nazi project in atomic bombs might be. But in 1942, the Nazis increased production of heavy water from the Vimorg plant again, this time from a production rate of 300 pounds a year, which had been the level after the first increase, to 10,000 pounds a year. So clearly this was perceived as a massive threat and thus became a target of the SOE's efforts. Churchill's friend and science advisor, the British physicist Frederick Lindemann, informed Churchill that the Germans were stockpiling heavy water, that they had accumulated one and a half tons. They could potentially create a weapon more powerful than anything that had been seen before once they had five tons to work with. So a multi-stage mission was planned to take down the plant. The first stage, called Operation Grouse, was planned to drop Norwegian guerrillas into Norway. And this was successfully executed in October of 1942. So those were people that had fled and then were dropped back in. 
The second stage, which was codenamed Operation Freshman and intended to land British commandos in Norway to rendezvous with that initial group, went terribly awry. The aircraft carrying the British men into Norway crashed and 15 people were killed. The survivors were all captured, some killed immediately, some tortured before being executed. The failure of Operation Freshman cast doubt on the entire mission, but the possibility of Nazis creating an atomic bomb was so great a danger that something had to be done. So to complete this mission, the SOE needed Norwegian saboteurs. Yeah, there were actually two different aircraft and uh, it was a one crashed and those are the people that were killed immediately and the other had a crash landing and those were the men that were taken into captivity. Um, we're going to talk about the sources of some of the special operation executives best information about the Norsk hydro plant in just a moment. But first, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. <music> A professor of chemistry at the University of Trondheim, Leif Tronstad, had been the mastermind behind the work of the Vermorck plant in the 1930s. Tronstad had fought against the Germans when they invaded Norway, and when his home country was defeated, he went back to his job. But he also began feeding the Allies information anonymously about the Vermorck plant and Germany's interest in it. Tronstad had attempted to foul the existing stockpile of heavy water at the plant once the Germans had occupied it by adding cod liver oil. He fell under some suspicion and he fled Norway, leaving his family behind, going first to Sweden and then to England. It was only after he arrived in England that he went back and revealed himself as the anonymous source who had been sending intel to the Allies from within the hydro facility. Tronstadt convinced Allied forces that bombing Vimork, something that was considered after the failure of Operation Freshman, was a really bad idea and that it would lead to a lot of civilian casualties and that all that effort would likely not even touch the key components they were targeting because those were kept in a highly reinforced underground part of the facility. So Tronstadt offered up all of the info that he possibly could to the SOE to assist in planning an alternate approach. He described the entire layout of the facility to the SOE. And then another employee from Norsk Hydro, Einar Skinnerland, also made an escape from Norway aboard a commandeered steamer with five other men. He had gone to London to tell the authorities about the latest increase in heavy water production. Additionally, the man who had replaced Tronstadt at the plant... Jomar Brun also wanted to sabotage the Germans and started taking micro photographs of the plant and sending them to London in toothpaste tubes. Yeah, all of these Norwegian physicists were like, we were working on something really cool and you ruined it and <laughs> we're going to do everything we can to fight you, which I love. The Norwegian team was trained by the SOE, first in their general training facility in Scotland and then for mission-specific training at a Hertfordshire mansion called Brichtenbury Manor. And there they practiced their mission plan in a replica of the heavy water room at the Vimorg plant, which had been built in an outbuilding on the property using the photographs from Brun and the descriptions from Tronstad for reference. One of the interesting aspects of the mission was a step taken to try to protect the locals from violent retribution that the Nazis had at this point become known for to offset the odds that Norwegians who were living near the Norse Hydro plant would take the blame if the SOE operatives were captured they all had on British uniforms under their snowsuits. So this is a good example of how Churchill's secret force was trying to mitigate the collateral damage that was being caused by their missions. Yeah, that was actually really important to 
the people that were working in the ministry, like they, you recognize that there's collateral damage in war, but they worked really hard to try to minimize it. Uh, the team rehearsed their plan over and over, even in the dark, so that they would be able to execute the mission quietly and efficiently when the time came. So precise was the information supplied by Tronstadt, even down to where the bathroom keys were kept, that the men who had never been in the building felt as though they knew it as well as if they had worked there for years and years. While the saboteurs chosen for the mission didn't know exactly what the significance of this plant was, they understood that it was incredibly important and that the whole thing was risky. They were given cyanide death pills to take in the event of capture. It was made really clear to them that there was a high likelihood that they were not going to survive. Tronstad told one of the men, for the sake of those who have gone before you and are now dead, I urge you to make this operation a success. You have no idea how important this mission is, but what you are going to do will live in Norway's history for hundreds of years to come. On February 16, 1943, the group was finally dropped into the Norwegian wilderness. They were dropped with so many supplies to survive the freezing cold that even though they landed almost perfectly, it took the men four hours to gather up everything, in part because one of a dozen containers filled with supplies had been blown off course by a gust of wind. But after they got everything together, uh, a blizzard set in, and the men who were attempting to rendezvous with the group that had been dropped in October during Operation Grouse were fortunate enough to literally stumble upon a hut that was normally used by hunters. And so that accidental discovery of shelter in this blizzard almost certainly saved their lives and the mission. They sheltered in the hut until February 22nd, and that day they were located by the grouse team, who had been surviving the harsh winter conditions by eating the occasional reindeer, but more consistently eating moss. After the capture of the survivors of the Operation Freshman team, the grouse group had needed to stay hidden in the wilderness to avoid capture themselves. So after months of living in these grueling conditions, they were not in great shape, but they were ready to complete the mission. That mission, codenamed Operation Gunnerside, was carried out just five days later on February 27th, 1943. The only direct access to the plant was a suspension bridge, and there was, of course, constant surveillance of that bridge. Because it sat on the precipice of a cliff, the only other options to reach Vimork were to come at it from above, which, include, which involved traversing a very steep slope littered with mines, or to scale the cliff wall and approach it from below. And the team that had parachuted in and surveilled the situation opted to climb the 500-foot, that's a 152-meter cliff, in the freezing cold of winter and in the dead of night. And that meant that they first had to climb down into a gorge and then make their way across the river there via ice bridge, which they could only hope was going to hold their weight. After they crossed the river, the men still had to climb the cliff wall so that they could follow a single-track railway onto the plant property. The group was carrying a lot of gear, which made this trek and the climb even more of a challenge. Each man had a pistol, a knife, and grenades, and they also collectively carried two sniper rifles and five Tommy guns. On top of that, they had the explosives that were intended for the plant. Climbing up the face of a frozen cliff wall that high sounds utterly terrifying to me and then to add like full kit to it i i have so much respect for these people briefly once they had finished scaling that cliff the men paused in the shadow of an outbuilding so that they could rest and to prepare for the next steps they ate some chocolate and they all sat very calm and ready 
And several of the group would later describe feeling very confident in that moment and thankful for the training that had readied them for the job ahead. Once they got to the fence outside the facility, a pair of bolt cutters were used to cut an opening that the team could pass through. The British military supplied a hacksaw for these kinds of instances, but the team lead, Joachim Ronenberg, had purchased the cutters himself for the trip. He was afraid that a hacksaw would take too long and attract attention. The sentries on guard at the gates were completely oblivious, so the bolt cutters seemed to have been the perfect choice. And before we jump into the final phase of this incredibly daring mission, we're going to catch our breath with a short little sponsor break. There were two squads that split apart once they were inside. Four men to handle the explosives and the rest to provide cover. The cover party headed into the plant into an upper platform where they could watch the guards. The explosives group then sort of accidentally, it seems like, subdivided into team into two teams. So the pair that was led by Ronneberg made their way to a door that was supposed to have been unlocked, but it was not. It turned out that one of their accomplices that was supposed to prepare that door and make sure it was unlocked had gotten sick and did not get into work that day. And this is actually when all of that time familiarizing themselves with the floor plans of the facility really paid off because Ronneberg knew that there was an alternate route, an access tunnel. It was like a, a cable pass through that was large enough for a man to crawl through, which led straight to the target area. They got through their crawl, still carrying their explosives, and made their way to a high concentration room and subdued the guard there who had no idea they were there until they had a gun to his head. As the explosive charges were being placed on metal cylinder water production cells, the second two-man group, which also had to improvise their entry into the room, got there. Ronenberg had expected the second pair to follow his lead through this tunnel, but they had missed it and had come an alternate way from above and through a window. The group checked all of their charges once they were placed, and they felt so confident, and they were so worried that their otherwise perfect mission could be ruined if the time delays on the explosives took too long, that they actually reset them from the planned two minutes to 30 seconds. And in an odd moment of levity that's described in their accounts, the guard that they had captured actually asked if he could please retrieve his glasses before the charges were blown, because apparently they were a kind he loved and they were going to be hard to replace. And Ronneberg's team obliged, and then they told him that he needed to take cover. The team lit the fuses, and they made their way out of the building, clearing it by about 20 yards, which is about 18 meters, before they heard the explosion. It was a quieter and a more muffled sound than they had expected, and the men were disappointed that they didn't get the satisfaction of a massive bang, but the charges had worked exactly as they were designed to. The men who had made up the cover party rejoined the explosives group on the railway tracks, and they made their way back across the ice bridge. And they had a few near misses as the manhunt began. It actually took a little while for the guards at the plant to realize what had happened because they had been so stealthy about the whole thing. But then uh, once they realized that there had been sabotage, everyone scrambled. And there were a couple of instances where Germans passed literally right by the SOE team as they made their way back into the woods. But they managed to avoid being seen. And then they recovered the skis that they had hidden in the woods and continued their escape, getting as far away from the plant as possible as quickly as they could. They actually covered more than 10 miles on skis before sunrise, which was when they first paused to eat and kind of take a breath. Not a single gun had been fired during the mission. There were no casualties. 
From there, the cover party spread out into the wilderness. The explosives group traveled to Sweden on skis. It was a journey of more than 200 miles, just 322 kilometers. A tiny band of men had achieved the level of damage that a group of bombers couldn't have done. They successfully sabotaged the heavy water production that was being supplied to the Nazis, and there was no loss of life in the process. All of the men who participated in the mission were given awards, either the Military Cross, the Distinguished Service Order, or the Military Medal. The men who planned the mission and trained those operatives were also awarded. As for the German reaction to the attack, it was a little different than that that followed the other events that we've talked about. Reports indicated that the commander of the occupying German forces, General von Falkenhorst, actually had a level of admiration for what the Allies had accomplished. Some of the local Norwegian citizens had been taken into custody, but he ordered their release and instead had the guards that had been on duty arrested. What ultimately happened to those men is not known. Yeah, probably not good. Um, But basically, he was so fed up that these people managed to sneak right past a guardhouse do all of this without anyone realizing there was even an intruder on the property and get out cleanly before it exploded made him very angry at those guards. While the destruction of the Norsk Hydro Heavy Water Production Operation was a huge blow to the Germans, it didn't stop things forever. The Nazis did manage to get the facility online again just several months later. And at the end of 1943, Allied forces took the step that they had abandoned earlier. The U.S. bombed the plant. As had been predicted by Leif Tronstad, the bombing had little effect on the facility and almost two dozen civilians were killed. The bombing did catalyze a decision on the part of German leadership to move their heavy water production out of Norway, though. As a ferry carrying the existing supply of heavy heavy water product and equipment that would be used to set up new facilities in Germany made its way along Lake Tin on February 20th of 1944, a Norwegian saboteur group once again moved into action. This ferry, the SF Hydro, sank when an explosion went off on the bow and Germany lost its last assets for atomic bomb production. And the actual level of import of the success of Operation Gunnerside has been debated in the decades since the war. It actually uh, appears, based on some documentation, that Germany's fervor for atomic weaponry had actually cooled by the time the strike at Vermork was carried out. But as the Allies had no way of knowing the status of Nazi projects involving heavy water, and they had, remember, ordered a much higher production rate, it is still considered crucial in having stamped out the possibility of a German-developed atomic bomb. It was, however, still one of the most successful of all the missions mounted by the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare due to its successful execution of mission goals and zero mortalities. And I will tell you, that is also a story that gets told, uh, as Tronstad said, throughout Norway. There, um, There is actually a write-up about it on the existing Norsk Hydro website like they talk about it and how after the war they were able to rebuild and and once again start regular production but it's it's definitely something that is a part of their history they are not shy about acknowledging Operation Gunnerside was the subject of a 1965 Kirk Douglas film it was called The Heroes of Telemark although as is so often the case, that film has a lot of historical inaccuracies. There was also a miniseries about heavy water and its place in Norway's history that was produced by the Norwegian Broadcasting Company more recently. Yeah, we missed the window. I think that was on Netflix until just a couple months ago. 
Um, and now it seems to be a lot more difficult to get a hold of. But uh, I I watched a clip of it and it looked quite good. The four operations that we just talked about, um, if you include the ones from the first episode, make up only the tiniest fraction of the actions that were taken during World War II by the SOE. And there is a very real possibility that some or even many of its more covert actions are still unknown today. By the time the Battle of Normandy was underway in the summer of 1944, the SOE had ties to resistance fighters throughout Europe. It had become an allied tool that could strike quickly without warning. As the tide of war turned and it looked as though the Allies would win, there were a lot of discussions at the highest levels of government and military about what should happen to the SOE. And while arguments raged on about whether the SOE should be rolled under the umbrella of the Ministry of Defense or start reporting to the Foreign Secretary or a number of other possibilities, the election of 1945 approached, with Winston Churchill up for re-election as Prime Minister. Germany had surrendered to the Allies on May 7th, a week after Adolf Hitler committed suicide and two months before Great Britain's general election on July 5th. Although he was an incredibly popular wartime prime minister, the election went in a landslide to his Labour Party opponent, Clement Attlee. While Churchill had risen to the task of leading the country through war, voters bet on Attlee and the Labour Party to lead the country's rebuilding. And so with Churchill no longer in office, the SOE lost its champion. There had been some hopes that Winston Churchill would have put protections in place for the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare before leaving office. But instead, in the months that followed the election, locations were slowly closed one after another. Finally, on January 15, 1946, the Special Operations Executive was permanently disbanded when Attlee signed the dissolution order. A handful of staff from the SOE moved to MI6, and others were transferred to other branches of the military or government work. Most of them, though, were let go and returned to the jobs that they had done before the war. Yeah, some of those those moves were actually made before offices were even shut down, kind of in anticipation. They really didn't, they had seen some writing on the wall. And while the kind of work, um, I feel like I should point out, that was done by the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare was certainly impressive, and it's really easy to romanticize, it's also telling that even with its great success, there were plenty of people within Great Britain's government who felt that the nature of the warfare it engaged in was dishonorable. Like, it's a little bit of an outdated notion, but they really thought, like, this kind of weird, sneaky trickery is not what we're about. And at the end of the day, it's all still warfare, even if it is fought with cool, cutting-edge technology and great style. So it's one of those things of, like, warfare in and of itself is not necessarily something that, uh, you know, should be hoped for. Perhaps one of the most poignant insights into the effect of the war and the work that the SOE had on the, the people involved was written by Tronstad, the Norwegian chemist, who wrote in his diary, quote, war makes the mind very hard. Becoming a sensitive person again will not be easy. Yeah, he was keenly aware that, you know, sort of cheering for the death of your opponent takes something away from your humanity. There is currently a film about the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare in development, but there aren't many details about it. I think that was optioned two years ago, and I don't know what its status is. Uh, it is based on one of the recent books on the subject, which was written by Damian Lewis, titled Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, How Churchill's Secret Warriors Set Europe Ablaze and Gave Birth to Modern Black Ops. Uh, that came out in 2015. 
And I read that in another book called Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, The Mavericks Who Plotted Hitler's Defeat, which was written by Giles Milton in preparation for this episode, as well as a number of other books uh, in part, all of which will be listed in our show notes. And any of them, I think, would probably make pretty great films. Uh, because as we mentioned at the beginning of the first episode, in a quote that we read, the exploits of this group were high adventure and high danger and the kind of things that uh, make movies very exciting to watch. Uh, and now my list of future episode topics sure does include a lot of specific people from the SOE because there were many and they were amazing. I would love to do an episode just on the women of the SOE because they don't always get mentioned all that much, but there were a lot of women from, you know, those doing administrative work all the way to field work that were doing some incredibly brave and amazing things that that would be worth examining in the future. So it's on the list. For those of you who are thinking, I should write and say they should do an episode about the <laughs> women of the SOE. Yes, we should. Do you have some listener mail for us today? I do. We kind of have like a, a mailbag hodgepodge uh, because there have been a lot. We always get a lot. And I, I had for a while been reading lots of our... um postcards and thanking people, but uh, we just got behind on that. We're doing other things for a bit. So I'm going to read a few. The first one is from our listener, Jess. She writes, thank you so much for your awesome podcast. It keeps me so entertained while I walk to and from class. I know how much Holly loves Halloween, so I thought you'd both appreciate this postcard from the Kirk Hammett Horror Movie Exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, thanks again. And it is a cool... Um, classic horror and sci-fi movie poster postcard from the Kirk Hammett collection of It's Alive. It's awesome. I think that's an exhibition that was not open yet the last time I was there, but they were working on it. It sounds amazing, and it is so up my alley. Um, yeah. Our listener Stephanie also wrote uh, about our Edward Gorey episode. She wrote, Dear Holly and Tracy, thank you for the episode on Edward Gorey. This illustration is why I love him so much, to quote Holly. I'm a longtime listener from Utah and really enjoy your show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's the uh, a lovely image of people at a seance with a ghostly apparition-style hand reaching out from the, the ether to deliver what looks like mail. <laughs> Edward Gorey. Our last mailbag item is from our listener, Kate. And she is very cute because she wrote her entire um, note and then she wrote a second draft of it and tucked it in and said, read the second draft in the instead of the card. So I'm doing that. So she writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I just wanted to take a moment and express how much I enjoyed your recent podcast on three Reformation women. This year, I attained my Master of Divinity, and religious history has been a soapbox of mine for a long time. The treatment of women in this field, as in other areas of history, is often either appalling or non-existent, with a few notable exceptions, as you well know and do justice to. Thank you for bringing to light some of the women of the Reformation, a period of history where the men do loom large, but, as you have shown, the women held their ground and contributed in mighty ways also. Keep up the great work. I await each new episode eagerly. Yours, Kate. Oh, Kate, that was lovely. Um, thank you so much. Like I, I have a massive pile of mail that we get from people and I love it so much. I always say this, but I'll be repetitive. I wish I could read it all on the air. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, it's hard, but it's lovely. It's one of those things that because I'm here at the office, when I'm just having a grouchy day, I can pick up a piece of mail and it's usually so lovely. It makes me smile and fixes my grousiness. Yeah. Um, if you would like to write to us, you can do that. 
We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across all of the bands of social media as Missed in History. That includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr. I might have left something off, but we're Missed in History pretty much everywhere. You can also go to MissedInHistory.com, which is our website. You can find every episode of the show ever of all time, including those that were way before Tracy and I were involved. And you can find uh, show notes for the shows that Tracy and I have worked on. So we hope you come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 